When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So every so often, we dive into a subject that we know we're going to return to in the future or a subject that is just too big to be one episode. And that's what we ran into when we started asking ourselves about banks, drugs, and money. Uh, We didn't do this alone. We did this as part of a long interview segment with Robert Mazur who is, by the way, as you'll find in in part one and part two, a really cool guy. Yeah, he is. We watched a movie that was based on Robert's work, and it was a fictionalized telling of his story, but we actually got to sit down with him and hear it from his own mouth. It was awesome. Cool movie, too, by the way, The Infiltrator. Check it out, and check out this classic episode right now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. I'm Ben. You are you. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know, but not the average episode of stuff they don't want you to know. Isn't that right, guys? We've got a little added uh, value here uh, in this particular pair of episodes. That's true. This is, is this our first ever two-parter? Uh, no. No, I don't think so. I know we've, we split DARPA up into two, and there were mm-hmm. a couple other ones that we've yeah. done in the past. Okay, well, this is definitely our first ever two-part interview episode. Correct. That's true. About the same thing. So, uh, by way of explanation, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you have heard Matt Knoll and I refer to, uh, or allude to various adventures that we've taken or new things that we said were coming or were on the way. We get around. We get around. 
And, uh, this time we got around to, uh, we got around to a part of the world, at least socially speaking, that we haven't really explored in too much depth. And that was a, uh, it concerned a tale that is stranger than fiction. So you've heard of undercover operations, right? Like, uh, what, what exactly is an undercover operation? It's pretty simple. Uh, one person who is usually in law enforcement in some way pretends to be, let's say, uh, a nefarious gang member from a different part of town or new to town, but I'm into all this bad stuff. Like I, I like to, let's say launder money. Or maybe deal drugs. Or maybe torture kittens. Yeah. yeah. Do one of those things. Get in with a crew, like low level maybe, mm-hmm. somehow like that. And that's a distinction that we need to make right up front. There uh, are certainly different kinds of um, undercover operations. Some might just be for a particular sting where you have a cop posing as as one of these yeah, nefarious types call. that you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about today is long-term deep undercover operations, which is a whole nother ballgame. A very dangerous one indeed. So uh, just to illustrate the difference uh, pretty quickly, one of the rules is always keep things as close to the truth as possible so you don't compromise your actual identity. So Matt Frederick then for instance, uh, if, is it okay if we make you street level? Sure. Okay. So Matt Frederick then, uh, is assigned to do some, uh, street level infiltration of maybe someone selling, what's a drug? Uh, well, I'm, I have to go in and infiltrate Stringer Bell's like low level crew. Okay. So I, I've got to get in, get in with the, uh, the group who's selling drugs out of the, the apartment. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So you become, uh, Matt Frederick is gone and replaced by, uh, Murdoch Farnsworth. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and, that so, is the most street level name I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Murdoch Farnsworth. I think people just call you Murdoch. <laughs> yeah. Murdoch Farnsworth, uh, has a, a CI or an informant who comes along with him to vouch for him from their days in an outlaw biker gang or something, right? Sure. Yeah. And the weird thing is that at some point, uh, Murdoch is going to have to do things that Matt Frederick would never do, you know, probably sample a drug at some point, possibly, because this, a lot of the street sure. level people might. Other illegal stuff. Yeah. Other illegal stuff, aid and abet, mm-hmm. uh, crimes, maybe rough someone up to, to show that you are Murdoch. Possibly even witness a murder that you could have prevented. Possibly. Possibly. Hopefully not, because, right, you know, I'm a little squeamish, though. So. And the line blurs, and this line is even blurrier if we take, for instance, uh, Noel Brown, and while Matt Frederick is working at the street-level operation, let's say uh, Noel Brown is infiltrating a human trafficking ring. This is even stickier, a human trafficking ring, uh, because, let's see, he changes his name. What's his name now, Matt? Nicholas Barnaby. <laughs> yes, Nicholas Barnaby. Two first names. Nick, Nicholas Barnaby, a uh, a well, old money wealthy philanthropist who has and philanderer and philanderer <laughs> who has decided that the only people you could trust in this world are people that you own, <laughs> and so he is infiltrating. Uh, sadly, this is true uh, because of Hartsfield Airport here in Atlanta. It is a hub for human trafficking. So is you you would see hopefully, ladies and gentlemen. 
how this undercover sting kind of stuff can happen, as Noel said, for a variety of reasons. So we've got Murdoch on there for maybe a few months, right? Sure. Pulling everyone you can, maybe nab somebody, maybe the uh, maybe there's something political where you're involved, where they say, okay, now we need the bust because someone's coming up for election, which unfortunately happens. Mm-hmm. But in the other case, we we have Mr. Barnaby. I am like embedded in this world. You yeah, know? yeah. I, mean, I am make. I am playing the long game. I am making connections, meeting mm-hmm. people above those connections, and doing mm-hmm. everything in my power to make it as high up the chain as possible, so that I can turn those people in to my um, people that I answer to. And should you, should either of you survive, uh, the strange and terrifying thing is that neither of you will be able to live fully return to your natural life because there will always be concerns for your safety, right? What's going to happen when uh, the foreign connection for whatever drug empire Murdoch bust learns that Murdoch Farnsworth is fictitious, but someone who looks a lot like him lives in the same area. Sure. Well, even if we successfully put people away for years, maybe even a life sentence for 20 years in the future, those people will be out of jail. Well, not only that, I mean, if watching shows like Oz or, you know, The Sopranos teaches you anything, it's that being in prison is not the end all be all. You still have associates on the outside mm-hmm. that you can communicate with quite easily, especially right. if you're uh, you know, a big player in, in that scene. You are protected and you are surrounded by your people in prison. And it's very easy to get a message out to put out a hit even from prison. So why are we beating around the bush with all of this uh, fantasy, shall we say? Ah, yes. Excellent question. Uh, perhaps we're more painting the background of the picture of today's topic, which is undercover Policing, which which is uh, these sting operations, these long term embedded things. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt and Noel and I spoke with someone who has done this in real life. And uh, during the course of our interview, we got a first hand look at how these uh, how these operations occur, both for the good and the bad. And we do want you to know that due to security concerns, we have had to mask this person's voice. Uh, this man's name is Robert Mazur. Now, last Friday, Ben and Noel and I got to go and see the film, The Infiltrator, which is based on the book that this man, Robert Mazur, wrote about his time infiltrating the, the Medellin cartel in Colombia. Now, this show is going to focus a lot on that film and what we saw and the experiences because it is based on what this guy actually did. And you're going to see as we get into some of these questions, he's kind of separating what became the film as opposed to what was, you know, his real life and what he experienced. Fascinating in and of itself, because it's how cool was it to be able to talk to the subject of a biopic like this and say, hey, 
So what's up with that scene where uh, you had to go into the um, Santeria temple and, um, you know, be kind of given a test by, you know, this practitioner? A padrino. Uh, a padrino, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, what? how did that really go down? This is a question that you will hear. And just, just to give you a little context, this is a scene that happened in the movie where this band is being vetted by these high-level drug officials. Spoiler it's, alert. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but I just wanted to give you a sense of how cool it was to be able to separate what happened in the film with what happened in real, in the actual operation, the course of the operation. And there's a lot of moments like that. It's a great film. I really would recommend it. It was a lot, it reminded me, kind of had the, the feel of Goodfellas in a way, that Ooh. kind of really dynamic, interesting kind of, um, ensemble cast and it was very funny it moves very quickly and it doesn't pull any punches it really gives you a sense there's no glorification of either what this man is doing because he has to do some pretty intense stuff in the name of his right operation and getting it done and then of course you see the havoc that drugs and drug violence and smuggling and money laundering can wreak on people's lives. So Robert Mazur uh, began something called Operation Sea Chase. And with a team at its height, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, he and his group did something extraordinary at the time, which is they began to follow the financial footprints rather than the narcotic footprints, by which we mean uh, they didn't just start chasing cocaine shipments from CIs or whatever, or, can, you know, informants. Mm-hmm. What they started doing was uh, finding out what banks handled what money, yeah. where it went, how it changed hands. And over the course of this, he became, uh, Bob Mazur became somebody named Bob Musella. We were given the opportunity to interview Mr. Mazur because of his involvement in this movie. Um, an agency reached out to us and asked if we were interested in speaking with him, and it was something we just could not pass up. And while The Infiltrator did not sponsor this episode, we do have a sponsor, and we're going to get to that now and then get right into the interview with Mr. Mazur. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So first things first, Mr. Mazur, uh, how satisfied are you with the adaptation of the story? Hmm. Well, you know, um, and I must say that, you know, it's very difficult for me to compare because we're talking apples and oranges. You know, the film is for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and my book is my attempt to tell my version of the truth. And I say it that way because, you know, this was no individual effort. This was a team effort by about 250, at the height of the operation, about 250 people. So, and, and I think if you asked each of them to write a book, you'd probably have some variations in it, not because anyone's not being truthful, just because they have their own perspectives. And so for me, um, you know, I think that the, the film adaptation certainly brings across a, a lot of the the issues that need to be brought across. And of course, when they want to go from point A to point B, 
if it took me 25 steps to do it, they just obviously can't do it in that medium. But um, they, they they get to the end point and and uh, I think deliver um, the type of end result on a given topic, like the 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 relationship between let's say the me Brian Cranston and Benjamin Bratt. Uh, in the film, mm-hmm. you know, there, some of the things that are in there that are that build to you, helping the moviegoer to recognize that this is um, beyond just an undercover agent and a bad guy dealing together, and and being an undercover agent causes you to have to de- to build some bonds with with a person um, is different. It happened a little bit differently with me, but the end result is still the same. You you still had a recognition by both characters that you got to know each other over a period of time, and that that involves much more than just um, the I guess clinical contact as undercover agent and and bad guy. If 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 I'm getting through on that. It's so fascinating to me. This is Noel, by the way, um, watching this film and, and, and thinking of it in kind of a meta sense where, you know, clearly we're watching this very excellent character actor, Brian Cranston, play this role of a man that is essentially being a character actor and playing a role and having to disappear into a part. Um, I just find that very fascinating. I'm just wondering if that aspect of it felt did it ring true to you? Just the the um, the need to completely disappear into these covert characters that you're essentially creating. Yeah, you know, and and you bring up a good point about character because the the character that I created because um, when I was trained to be a long term undercover agent, I mean, I, I I was an agent traditional in a traditional sense for 14 years before I went through the undercover school and then began to develop um, the undercover identity of Robert Musella. But one of the things that was taught to me right from the very beginning um, it was that I really needed to build a, a persona that would put me in a position to lie the least. So, because it's so hard to to keep track over years period of time uh, if if you're not naturally working within your own skin, so to speak. So I'm originally from New York. I have previously, before working for law enforcement, I worked at a bank and then I worked in a brokerage firm. And I um, have some of the family experiences that I lived in a neighborhood and and was in around some people who were um, certainly connected with another part of the world than than I became connected with. Um, and and so I, I had a sense of what uh, Italian American organized crime was about, and and so I didn't really have to. Uh, that's that's what Bob Musella had in him too. Bob Musella was was a guy who had and my my degree was in business administration finance, and I had a, a heavy emphasis in accounting, and and so was Bob Musella. He was a, a guy who. Uh, knew how to deal in the business world and had a financial background and was from the New York area and had these connections with uh, organized crime. And and so a lot of that stuff is stuff that I was very, very comfortable with. I I didn't create a, a persona where, you know, I would turn on a switch and now I was this big flamboyant guy that um, that was a completely different person. My personality, I think, um, that I portrayed was probably similar to what um, my real personality is, I think. You know, at least what I would hear back from 
the traffickers about why they were interested in doing business with me was because I was stable. I was I knew about things that they didn't know about in the financial markets. I was cautious. Um, <clears throat> I was low key. Um, all of those things were very important to them, and and all of those things those things were really a part of Bob Mazur. And this this is a this is a fascinating aspect of the story because, as you say, being in someone else's uh, skin for the duration of this operation, uh, the, the operation specifically cited is called Sea Chase, and. One thing that really impacted us and impacts our audience as well is the recognition of just how long term this operation became. Could could you tell us and our audience a little bit about the origin or the genesis of Sea Chase and uh, Bob Musello? Sure. Well, having worked on a multi agency task force, that's who's principal responsibility was attempting to identify the command and control of the cartels, as well as identifying the the money launderers who were servicing the command and control. Um, We had been using search warrants, wiretaps, historical witnesses, uh, that type of thing, and came to the conclusion, um, and I was really blessed with working with a leadership that was willing to hear out the idea of this plan. Um, um, My view was, and it was shared by a few of my colleagues, that the best way to accomplish our goal was to infiltrate their money laundering systems. And that, that was embraced. So that got me through the undercover school, that got me through then about 18 months of time where we put together the the undercover front. And and that was put together with the help of several informants and concerned citizens. Um, there were two guys that were informants of mine who were, um, we, we call them in, 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 in the underworld, knock-around guys. They, they didn't work for any one particular crew, but they were certainly part of a family. And um, they 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 and their under uh, their their organized crime contacts enabled us to be able to use certain businesses actually both those guys played the roles in the undercover operation from time to time i would bring them in in cameos as my cousins and one of the guys used to be um a bodyguard for a capo in a crime family and you can't i mean he would walk in a room and people would look at him and nobody had to say anything they immediately recognized what he was really all about, very much like the Dominic figure in the movie um, that um, is played by Joe Gillen. And uh, the other guy was much more polished and had um, some Wall Street contacts. And um, and then we also had an informant from Columbia. And then I had um, um, a couple of lifelong friends of mine who were bankers and brokers who enabled me to establish accounts at various institutions. Um, This took about an 18-month period of time, and as I emerged from that, I was embedded in real businesses, a finance company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had an air charter service with a private jet, um, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East Coast, 
and even a brokerage firm um, with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. So I didn't have to be the best undercover agent in the world. I, I was blessed with leadership that gave me the latitude to put that together. And then um, we were waiting for a unique opportunity to use the Trojan horse that was built. And lo and behold, my uh, a gentleman who became my partner and is now a brother to me, Amir Abreu, played by John Leguizamo in the movie, um, had an informant who had made connections with a money broker. Uh, that money broker being someone who personally knew uh, members of the Ochoa family who were sitting on a Medellin cartel and who was trying to get himself well-established in the money laundering business. So with with uh, that opportunity, we engaged the Trojan horse and marched into uh, the Medellin cartel, and it took about two years to get to the end. Um, and and believe me, along the way, we were very lucky. Um, sometimes they say it's better to be lucky than good, and, and I'm proof of that. Uh, the, the good things that happened along the way, uh, for example, um, the people in the cartel wanted me to pay out in dollar accounts, but they preferred that they be dollar accounts established in institutions in Panama. For obvious reasons, the access by U.S. law enforcement was more restricted. So I needed to open that up, and I had just happened to be driving through downtown Tampa and noticed this big gold sign that said Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, and assumed that they must have the ability to help you bank in in their foreign locations. I didn't really know much about the bank. So I called and like anyone else who approaches an international bank that has a private client division, um, I was asked to provide uh, a resume, uh, copies of bank statements, um, copies of, um, I needed references in the bank and business world. Um, I had all that stuff. I needed to have a million dollars that, uh, that I could potentially, they could manage. All of that was verifiable, and um, and I was invited to have a meeting at the bank. And he, I mean, here's an example of lucky instead of good. Um, I go in and I sit down, and um, the the guy asks me what it is I'm looking for, and I explain. Well, you know, most of my clients are from Medellin, Colombia, and uh, they have businesses. They have business activity here in the United States that generates a a huge huge amount of capital, and it's my responsibility to help them to move that money in a very discreet and quiet way and, um, and and I didn't get much past all of that and, and the guy said to me well do you do you think you'll have a need because I was telling him about moving money in from Panama to buy real estate in the US and he said do you think you'll have a, a need to move it in the other direction and I said well yeah, yeah I, there's no doubt about that and then they broke into this discussion about well I know what you're talking about that's the black money market and we have clients like you that have sensitive clients and, and um, we were helping them to open accounts in Green Cayman until this treaty was signed with the US government um, and I knew the treaty the treaty had to do with turning bank records over in drug cases and he said you know but we're now we're recommending Panama and ultimately, he drifted into saying, well, you know, you got to be careful when the stupid people get caught, get yourself involved in cash businesses, so you've got cover to take in the cash. And I, I left that meeting and went and contacted my office and said, you're just not going to believe the meeting I just had. This is like every red flag I've ever been taught in my entire government career uh, to look for. And this is not an individual banker looking to do something 
against management. This is this sounds like an institutional plan. And lo and behold, over probably a year and a half period of time, I was able to uh, get the evidence through discussions with more than a dozen senior bank officials at that bank about the bank's institutional plan to market the underworld. Um, that sounds like an easy thing to do, and wasn't. But um, but it, it was amazing how lucky breaks. You know, I, I guess some people say luck is just um, being well planned for the opportunity when it comes by, and and the opportunity came. Um, again, really, when we opened up an account in Panama and one of the checks uh, written by one of the bad guys, because I would just sign the checks, one of the checks written by the bad guys um, was filled out improperly. It was supposed to be for, let's just for example, say, say 103,000, and it was written in words 103,000 and numbers 103,500. And so the officer assigned to my account in Panama uh, called me and said, what amount should we honor? And I said, well, you probably know I can't answer that. I'll have to call Columbia and I'll call you back. And I did, and I explained what the amount was to pay. And he said to me, um, you know, we need to meet because uh, you're going to get caught. And uh, there's a lot better way to do what you're doing. And so there was no doubt in my mind that the people managing my account in Panama could tell just from the movements in the accounts that we were marketing narco dollars on the black money market. And lo and behold, because of that mistake, <laughs> that got flushed out. He came to Miami, we sat down. Of course, all these conversations were being recorded. And um, he explained how it is that I could better launder drug money. And then and then I, I said to him, well, it's great, you're getting back on a plane, you're going back to Panama. Um, I'm here in Florida, and if there's a problem and I need to see someone quickly, are there any people in your Miami office that are on your team handling these kinds of sensitive accounts? And at that stage, he said yes. And there were two people, and he named them. And when I called back to the office and explained that one of them was a, a fellow named Amjad Awan, uh, all the bells and whistles between Florida and Washington went off because that was the financial advisor that um, the U.S. government was eager to try to pin down he was managing um, the illicit fortune of Manuel Noriega. And so, you know, it went from there to Paris, to London, to the Bahamas. Um, and um, eventually we, we got to the end of the, the end of the story, but it was pretty well proven that the bank was uh, marketing the underworld, anybody with money that was seeking secrecy from governments. And the Bank of Credit and Commerce International was at this time one of the 10 biggest banks in the world. Is that correct? Seventh largest privately held bank in the world at the time. Uh, their assets were, I think, about $19 billion. They were in 72 countries, more than 500 and some branches. Um, as we substantiated later, their, uh, their clients included um, not just arms dealers and terrorists and drug traffickers and tax evaders, um, but also um, some of the bigger politicians in the world and the intelligence community as well. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. 
Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I just wanted to clarify something. Um, as 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 your relationship with these folks in the film, at least as it was portrayed in the film, progressed, and you had to earn their trust and and get their business and close the deal, it seemed to me that there was more going on than just moving money around. That you needed to show them that you could actually grow their money. Is that accurate, or did I mis uh, misinterpret that? Well, I had to I had to be able to show that their money would be secure. I had to be able to, as they put it, we need guarantees. You know, people with illicit fortunes, unlike what I think some people suggest that they may try to trick a bank into laundering money, um, we never tricked anybody. And um, and my, my clients in the cartel never tried to trick anybody. Um, it was something that required uh, an agreement and an acceptance of responsibility, knowing full well that the consequences of lost funds could be your life. Um, so uh, I was trying to get them to, and I, I think to a degree succeeded, to get them not just to launder money through my accounts. That doesn't really accomplish much after you've laundered money for the same guy a couple of times. You know, if you continue to launder money for the same person and the money's going into the same place, uh, all you're doing is facilitating crime. Um, and so the the mantra by which we we uh, move forward was if you're not meeting any new bad guys and you're not uncovering any new crime, we could shut down. We should shut down. Um, and so we were always on the move of trying to to do just that. And we were also on the move to try to get them to keep money with us as long as we could, because if we get them to use us to invest their funds, We'll have more to seize at the end, but even more importantly, and and clearly more importantly, in order to be able to have the responsibility to invest funds for someone, in all likelihood, you're going to be able to force a meeting with the beneficial owner of the funds. And that's really what it was all about, getting past all these middlemen and trying to deal directly with the type of people as Benjamin Bratt portrayed, um, who were major players uh, within the cartel. So, you know, the the investment um, angle, although it was nice to get investments to manage, was a technique to be able to meet people of responsibility, importance, and authority within the cartel. I have to ask about that Santeria scene. That was so compelling, the way it was portrayed in the film. It was just as a life or death situation that, you know, from where we sit was tied to, you know, what some might call superstition. Um, what was walking into that situation like? Well, nobody got killed sitting next to me. <laughs> but I, you know, it was pretty controversial. Um, I I was dealing with a guy who <clears throat> his wife was related to Gacha Rivera, one of the members of the cartel <clears throat> and uh, I think it was uh, his wife was a niece <clears throat> and he was uh, a practicing uh, he, he was practicing Santeria and as I got to know him some he said you know uh, I'm very interested in doing business with you but I need to make sure that my padrino my priest um, believes in you and so 
I'd like to I'd like you to come to Miami and we'll go visit uh the Santero and we'll uh we'll see what he has to say. Well some people back in the the office thought that was kind of way too risky that if the guy for whatever reason said no, didn't matter how good we were what we did, you know, we were gonna lose the relationship. Um, but I knew we weren't going to get a relationship with him if we didn't do it. So what do you have to lose, really? So um, it was in an area called Sweetwater in Miami, uh, very low, I would say low blue collar at best kind of area. Um, the house itself had burglar bars on it. So once you were in, you were in a birdcage, you couldn't get out. Um, I went there with him. He went into the room with the priest. The room was just like a bedroom uh, with a wooden floor. Um, and I could see, I mean, there was an altar there. Um, I could see the and candles and statues and all that kind of stuff. And I could see that uh, there had been sacrifices there. There was dried blood on the floor and, you know, chicken parts and stuff like that. And um, um, so I came into the room and he wasn't, the guy wasn't uh, a big, imposing, muscular guy like the guy in the film, but it's important to show that because he had a lot of power. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I, I think, you know, you need to appreciate as a moviegoer when you look at that. When you see that guy you in the movie, you know he's powerful. <laughs> you can tell it from his body style. Well, the guy that I dealt with wasn't like that. He was much, uh, much lighter, but all he did was come and embrace me and turned back to the altar then he came back to me uh held my hands and asked me to step outside and i did and then he brought the trafficker in there and um and then i waited outside and when he came out the trafficker came out he was all smiles and hugged me and said you know padrino says you're a good and honorable man and that i should do business with you so we will and, in, and when I told that story to the people in the office, some of them kind of chuckled because they said, well, you know, the, the priest wasn't that wrong. You're you are a good and honorable guy. It's just that you're not you're just not a, a, a money launderer, really a money launderer. So, you know, I don't know whether there's much to the, the Santeria or not, but um, it worked for them and it worked for me. Yeah. And it's uh, that was one of the scenes that really that really stayed with us uh, and also the it seems like one of the most important currencies involved in this operation was trust was earning the trust of these people through as you said uh the personality traits that they prized stability consistency reliability and when when we were looking at this this larger network uh from bank of credit and commerce international uh one thing that we noticed that a lot of our audience will have questions about is the the nuts and bolts of converting drug money into something that appeared to be legitimate and ultimately what happened to the funds and the assets that were seized at the conclusion of Operation Sea Chase. Well, you know, as far as laundering goes, it's like snowflakes. I mean, there's so many different ways in which you can do it. Um, very few are alike, but there are some fundamental issues. I mean, you've got suitcases and boxes full of cash, and you need to get it into the financial system so that you can make a payout um, and either a wire transfer or a check. 
So what BCCI was doing at the time, and it's something that continues to happen today. You know, I, I, I've read the deferred prosecution agreements and and the uh, toothless indictments that have been brought against banks in the in the recent past. And I say toothless indictments because if you're indicted and you're a, a bank, you should lose your license, but that, that doesn't happen. Um, when indictments are returned against banks these days, um, they wind up paying a fine and um, not a whole lot of people go to jail and and um, uh, life goes on. Uh, but when you, if you look at those deferred prosecutions, there's a section in there um, called a manner and means by which the, the crime of how they're committing a, a crime for an account holder is done. And, and I've looked at them. You know, there's one for, well, they all have a lot of a very, very similar tech techniques that were being used by BCCI back in the day or are clearly still being used based upon uh, my reading of the deferred prosecutions in the last five or six years. But anyway, um, the long and short of it is that, number one, they offered to take the cash from us and deposit it into their branches, but they did, they were very mindful at the time that to do that in a U.S. branch needed needed a, a, a very fine twist to it. So um, I was offered to take the money to the Bahamas. I was offered to take the money to Uruguay. I was offered to take the money to um, uh, Panama. Um, I do know that in other instances, uh, they were bringing in cash in Miami, booking it in as though it was cash shipped back from the Bahamas branch um, and being deposited in, in BCCI Miami. Um, but once you get the cash in, uh, the next step was to take the capital and put it into a CD, which was normally done in Luxembourg. Um, they had to uh, form a lot of, um, they either had to form or I needed to get another lawyer to form one way or the other. The accounts needed to be in the name of an offshore entity. And most often those entities were in uh, BVI, uh, Panama, Gibraltar, um, those are the ones, Hong Kong. Um, so a CD gets established, let's use as an example, a million dollars. And it's a 90-day CD with an automatic payout. Um, what they did then was they would go to another part of the world and they would uh, open a facility, a loan facility. Um, so a totally different entity would be issued a loan based upon in the papers uh, of the bank uh, just the, the financial uh, worthiness of the and of the corporation. So there was an off-book loan against the capital. No auditor would be able to link the two together. The loan proceeds were then moved to yet a third, fourth, and fifth foreign jurisdiction. And the reason for that is anytime the U.S. government or any government wants to try to get bank records in a, in a jurisdiction, they've got to go through the legal process. That takes a very, very long period of time. If you've got um, a string of Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, France and Panama uh, that you've got to get get through. Um, the, the the theory is that um, it'll take them 15 years to get through all that stuff. So now the money it leaves the loan facility. It winds up going to Panama. Uh, it was uh, at that stage put into a uh, checking account, and then based upon um, their preference was based upon oral instructions. Pay, payouts would be made to different accounts in parts of the world that were controlled by the cartel. Of course, their accounts were opened up in the name of nominees, um, and then those would be moved through other accounts 
So, you know, there was a long, long line of, of uh, bridges that had to be crossed before you could ever work your way back to the original cash deposit. And that is the first-hand history of Operation Sea Chase from the inside. Uh, we will be returning next week with part two of our interview with Mr. Mazur, wherein he details the present and the future of banks that practice money laundering in one way or another, and what, if any, consequences befall those organizations. Not to be too much of a tease here, but we get into some really interesting territory, including Mr. Mazur's perspective on the war on drugs as a whole, on things like marijuana legalization, where mm-hmm. we're heading as a country in that direction, and this is an authority on this stuff, and he's got some really interesting things to say, so look forward to that. But first... I feel like we've been saying but first pretty often (laughs) as we're setting this stuff up. But first, this is the part of the show where we would typically do a shout-out corner. However, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to have an in-the-news segment because something popped up recently, uh, probably on your news feeds. If you participate in social media, maybe you have seen a bunch of people walking around, staring at their phones, even more so than usual. Running into walls, perhaps, tripping over park benches. Stopping cars in the street. Any number of bizarro scenarios. No, my friends, it is not the zombie apocalypse. It is, in fact, the gaming craze, dare I say, of our generation, app-wise, Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. I've been looking forward to it, honestly. I mean, I'm I'm into that stuff, so, you know. So, uh, what what the blue blazes, uh, what the smelly shenanigans... What the heck is Pokemon Go? Well, if you've never heard of it or played it before, which would be rather astounding if this is the first time you're hearing about it, uh, but it's an augmented reality game. It's an app that you get on your smart device, uh-huh. and it uses your geolocation as well as uh, a lot of other information that's uh, that resides within your phone, your accounts, your mm-hmm. Google account, mm-hmm. uh, just to know exactly where you are, where you're going, where the Pokemon exist around you in the real world. But Matt, you've got to catch them all. It's, you get, Take take my information. Just give me Pokemon. <laughs> just put a Squirtle in my kitchen. That's all I've ever wanted. That's true. You said that the day we met. I know. Um, I was like, I just want, if I could just have a Squirtle in my kitchen, I will be happy man. But seriously, no, I have a seven-year-old, which is my excuse for playing the game. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, yeah, I buy disclosure. Legos for my cousins, bro. Yeah, exactly. Don't feel bad. Exactly. No, honestly, it's a it's a it's a very thin um, disguise for the fact that I am a bit of a nerd for this kind of stuff as well. Uh, but yeah, we played it, and it's 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 one of these situations that we've talked about in the past with privacy, with buying and selling of your personal information. Sure. You submit to it, you know, on Facebook. It's like I want my news feed. I want to be able to have all this great free stuff. Take my information. I know that's a very odd opinion to have, me being on a conspiracy podcast, but I really am just like I just just have it. It's fine. You're gonna take it anyway. Uh but one of the concerns also would be it's similar to the secondhand smoking argument. Because when people are walking around, you think about Google Earth, for instance. Google Earth did secondhand compromising of people 
uh, possibly in terms of uh, the information that was available on, you know, Street View, things like that. But still, that's a public place. The street is a public domain sort of situation. One thing that Google and other companies of this nature couldn't do as easily is get into buildings, have a Google floor view, right? Uh, but now this stuff that's being captured on camera every time somebody chases a Charizard or whatever, it is going somewhere, right? So the secondhand smoke in this situation would be, let's say, uh, one of our coworkers, name a coworker, who wouldn't like this. Jonathan Strickland. He would love yeah, this. Yeah, just say Matt Frederick. Oh, oh, Scott Benjamin. Scott oh. Benjamin. Yeah, Scott Benjamin, the man with no Gmail address, by the That's way. That's crazy. Uh, he, okay, so Scott Benjamin, uh, one of the co-hosts of our vehicle show, Car Stuff, uh, Scott Benjamin would probably never sign on to compromise the information on, on his phone or in whatever accounts he has floating out there in the cloud. However, if, say, Jonathan Strickland is walking around hunting Pokemon, then the camera feed and the audio feed that his app is using could easily capture Scott Benjamin sits here during this time of day to this time of day. Now, of course, that's a... Um, somewhat of an extremist view that someone would care where a single person sits for a few hours every day, but it's generated a lot of concern. And we'd like to give a shout out to a couple folks in particular who sent some information about this our way or asked about it. Yeah. So Nicole Harris and Rob Phillips, both were, they had, they were on the cusp. They knew what was going on and they reached out to us immediately and said that we should cover this. And there, it actually was referencing a pretty cool article on uh black bag, which is Gawker's kind of conspiracy type blog. And um, the most interesting thing from this article to me is the fact that the company that developed Pokemon Go is a company called Niantic, which was founded by a guy named John Hanka. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It might just be Hank. Um, and he also founded a company called Keyhole that specializes in geo-positioning location software. Mm-hmm. Now, Google Earth uses Keyhole's technology. As far as I'm aware, they absorbed Keyhole and likely folded some of the research and technology that that company had done into Google Earth. But there's one more step. And uh, long-time listeners, you might recognize this next one. That's right. Keyhole got a pretty sizable amount of funding from a firm called InQtel. This is a firm that we have mentioned several times on this show when we talked about... Uh, the FBI and, and other front agencies or front companies that agencies use, uh, to put forward new technologies, emerging technologies. They'll get money from places like InQtel, inject it into, let's say, a company that's looking into geo, you know, GPS technology. And then they're like, Hey, now we've got a flower that we created from this soil. And here's the thing. I'm joking mainly when I say I'm being a bit nihilistic and saying, give me my squirtle, take my information. I'm fine with it. I don't really feel that way exactly. I just kind of feel like we are living in a situation where we are being monitored and it's almost like either do you live in fear and panic all the time or you just kind of accept it and move on with your life and, you know, enjoy the free stuff. 
that that allows you. Or are those the only two choices? Maybe not. And that's a good point, Matt. But what this makes me think of is um, there was a great interview with Edward Snowden on uh, Vice recently where he was showing you how to disconnect the cameras in your iPhone mm-hmm. and all of the microphones and kind of showing you where the different chips were and all this stuff. And he made a wonderful point where he was sort of like, yeah, I mean, now – Okay, really, it's not super nefarious what's being done with this information. You know, no one is being um, monitored in any kind of nefarious way. No one is being targeted because of any of this stuff. It's just the technology is there. But what happens if we have a regime change where all of a sudden we're in more of a, a totalitarian system and all of a sudden the man or woman in charge flips the switch and decides to really start using this against us. Right. And also it could be something a little more insidious, a, a um, progression by degree. Mm-hmm. So for instance, what if instead of a switch being flipped, it becomes a, a matter of insurance rates changing for someone because the, the privacy agreement in Pokemon Go does explicitly allow the selling of this data or the transmission of this data to a third party. It's basically a we'll do what we want and good luck finding a Squirtle sort of agreement. So this does mean that if if uh, if they wished, the makers of Pokemon Go could uh, take your geolocation data. Let's say you're at, let's say you're always at some crazy place. Uh, what what's a crazy place to be? Crazy town. Crazy Atlanta? Isn't there a, a restaurant called Crazy Atlanta? Let's say you're at a place called Crazy Atlanta Town and it's a known drug den and, uh, your information about that is, is sent out and maybe your car insurance folks say, well, statistically, because we know that this person is at Crazy Atlanta Town, the notorious drug den bar, then their insurance rate is going to go up because we can't say that they're taking drugs and driving or whatever, but they're there for two hours between one and t- uh, between one and three a.m. every night, and they're driving home after that. So this, I mean, is this substantiated? I don't think so. Uh, is it possible? Yes, but is it probable? That's a whole nother bag of badgers. So we want to know what you guys think. Is Pokemon Go is an example of AR that's just a game changer teaching us the capabilities of this amazing technology we hold? Or is it something a little bit more perfidious? Is it something a little bit disingenuous? Uh, and do you play Pokemon Go? Also, what do you think about all the stuff that Robert Mazur was talking about in, in this interview about banks and just taking money? Just taking billions of dollars of drug dealers' money and just converting it because they make a huge profit and they don't really get in trouble for it. Yes, let us know what you think about all of the above. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are conspiracy stuff. You can also find us on Instagram. Speaking of uh, privacy violations, on yeah. Conspiracy Stuff Show. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one eight three three stdwytk If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.